Welcome to episode 17 of The Sizzle. This time I'm talking to Cassie Robinson, who is the senior head of the National Lottery Community Fund. She's a designer. She works for social betterment across a number of different things. And we talk about narratives and the power of narratives on an individual level, uh, therapeutically, the way that we use stories as humans and also the potential for narratives to facilitate social change. So without further ado, let's jump into it. And you get the two directions of the mic. Ah, Mm, Bidirectional. (laughs) Yeah, like 69er. Sorry to bring it to something weird. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Although like it's quite a pleasing, it's like a yin-yang. We could go yin-yang instead of 69, Yeah. 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 Um, so we were kind of deciding what to say on air and what not to say on air. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of arrived in this meeting room and, and we know that we're going to have a conversation, but we need to flesh out what we were going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I think I tweeted something about narrative therapy. Yeah. Specifically the idea of reconnecting or remembering people who have died as as an alternative way to connect with bereavement and then my memory of it is is you made a flippant comment like oh that'd be cool to talk about and I was like well let's talk about it um on the way up in the lift um somebody met me to bring me up and I I mentioned the word narrative and they said oh that's Cassie's favorite word so there does seem to be uh, some momentum around that. Um, I wonder why it's your favourite word or why someone would think it was your favourite word. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting that um, I've, I've got that reputation, even in a lift. <laughs> um, it's definitely not f- my favourite word, but it is a word I use a lot. Mm. Um, I guess in, in a few different contexts. So I suppose... In the work that I'm doing here at the National Lottery Community Fund um, and more broadly in other work I have done or am doing in the kind of social change, social innovation field, um, whatever name we give to it, the the need for better narrative work um, comes up often. And it so it's, it, it's kind of something that I call out or notice and I guess have a bit of an agenda around. Um, so someone here um, thinking that will be because I probably do bring it up in every other meeting we have. Mm. Um, so that would be one way in which I use that word a lot because I'm, I am really interested in how do we tell better systemic mm. narratives? How do we tell, how do we craft narratives that, are the honour and that are authentic to the kind of complexity that we live in. Mm. And a lot of the social sector, I think, has um, become very reliant on simplifying stories and telling individual stories, the power of the voice of the person with lived experience or the Mm. case study. And, um, yeah, it's not that they're wrong. They, those things those those ways of telling stories have a place but I I just feel like we're living in 
really complex times and the, st- the narratives that we have for that are not serving the purpose that we need. Um, and then I suppose the other the other area which links more to say grief and and death and is there's something about the need for more collective narratives generally and whether that links to the kind of myths that we've lost or that we had and have are no longer fit for purpose um and the kind of you know what I would call like our collective consciousness or our collective unconscious or as you're a psychologist our collective subconscious I mean who knows which bit of our consciousness but um I'm really interested in our in collective narratives um and that's probably I'm trying to think why do I think that why have I linked that now to death and grief and but I suppose there's something about I feel like we are living in a time where we're going to need to create some collective narratives around loss. Um, and we're li- we are already living some collective narratives around loss, but we're not telling those stories. Mm. Um, so those are just a few mm. things that we might talk about more. Yeah. So in narrative therapy as a practice, they talk very much about decentered practice. So trying to bring the person that you're working with into the, the middle of your understanding and not putting yourself there. So when you use a phrase like um, collective narratives or collective narrative, I suppose I'm, I'm curious to know what you mean um, before yeah, we start unpicking that. Yeah. Okay. I'll have a go. I mean, I think I mean a few different things and I think I, almost don't know what I mean sometimes so some of this is like a hunch and intuition well, about conversations can help us work out yeah. what we don't mean and what we do mean so a few things so so one is um when I talk about collective narrative in one sense there's something called the story initiative in no not the story initiative it's called the narrative initiative um which is an organization based in New York and they have developed um, this framework that I've found really useful just because it's quite poetic, where they talk about stars, constellations and galaxies. Stars are like your individual stories. Um, the constellations are like what's the sum. If you if you weave together some different stories, that's what I would call a collective narrative. Mm-hmm. And the galaxy is more like the unconscious, the myths, the culture that the stories and the collective narratives sort of sit within or are sitting or mm. have that, that sort of underpin. Um, so that's one way that I think about collective narratives. And that's that's the bit where or systemic narratives where we haven't got good at telling in the social change, sort of social justice world we haven't got good at telling those constellation stories. You know, when you were talking about stars, constellations and galaxies, I was struck by how poetic that was. And then I was uh, aware that my mind immediately went to qualitative research, which is perhaps less poetic, but I, I'm, I'm interested in what you're describing because I think that I've certainly seen the power of 
an individual talking about their lived experience. I've also seen people use case studies really, you know, to try and persuade or, or educate, communicate. I'm wondering why we don't have, you know, what, what I would call qualitative research, that kind of thematic um, analysis happening more. And maybe my hunch is it, it takes ages. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but um, yes, I, I feel like if I look at the data, I see quite often there'll be statistical uh, findings and then there'll be case studies or, or kind of, um, or yeah, maybe powerful anecdotes and not so much in between in, in terms of um, what I see supporting the cases for things. I, I don't know. Also, I'm not particularly well read in that in that field, but mm. well, I think it's like it's it's also the stories of the well, the narrative that is the in between the narrative of the liminal space that that contains sorry that contains the individual stories. So, for example, um, I don't know four or five years ago when I was doing something called Tech for Good TV. And we wanted to tell a story about housing and land and like the housing crisis and homelessness. And that, you know, that obviously is a th- as a theme, there's all kinds of bits to that narrative. You know, you can talk about the policy agenda, you could talk about the lived experience of somebody not having a home. And we, we called it the macroscope as a kind of, um the description of the type of storytelling we wanted to do um and we did we were doing it in a very expen- experimental way because I mean we weren't that's not that wasn't our kind of skill or experience but we just recognized that we didn't just want to tell a story of the person with lived experience of being homeless we cuz cuz that often the, the one of the downsides of only telling those kind of stories is you make it a you, you you can potentially suggest that it's the individual's responsibility and fault that they are then homeless. If you're not telling the wider systemic story of, you know, what's not working for people mm. around like the price of housing or the cost of land or the ownership of land or, you know, the policy agenda or, you know, so, so that, that was an example of us. We told, we, we did interviews and we met with different people that represented different parts of the system mm-hmm. but then we tried to tell a narrative that weaved all of them together and it's that it's the thread it's the narrative thread that joins together the different elements of a systemic story that is the bit I'm really interested in mm. um but that that's one thing and then the other the other thing that I when I t- talk about collective narrative um so I'll give you a very specific thing that happens because you might have some suggestions, which I would welcome. Um, I was away a couple of years ago with a group of women on a retreat. And at the end of the retreat, uh, we did this session where we were each invited to write on a piece of paper something that we had experienced that wasn't, you know, that hadn't that hadn't been pleasant, you know, and we wrote it on a piece of paper, we folded the piece of paper up, we put it in a basket as the basket was passed around. 
And then the basket went back around and each of us took out a piece of paper and we read we read what was on the paper. So we read out aloud someone else's experience. Mm. And it was one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced around this sense of the collective. Because firstly, there was just something very powerful about reading out someone else's experience and also witnessing like other people's experience and witnessing someone else reading out your experience. But the thing that was particularly powerful was that at no point did we ever know whose was whose. And that really didn't matter. Mm. So the experiences were not individualized. The experiences were not attached to any one individual. So this set of experiences remained in some way in the collective. They sat there. None of us really knew, but we all held that set of experiences. Um, and it was just so powerful because because we didn't know whose was whose and that became irrelevant. In some way, I felt we all were then taking some kind of responsibility for what had happened to each other. Um, and that, yeah, that, that, that one experience has stayed with me because on any kind of personal development or learning program or any kind of thing I've been on like that, um, it always starts by you know, the person, the individual, and you tell your story or, you know, people in social change and social justice will talk about how if you haven't sorted out yourself as an individual, you can't possibly go into the world of change work. So I feel like the whole field of like personal development and I mean, psychology is an incredibly individualizing kind of, or has a lot of psychology practice has reinforce this idea of us as individuals um but you can disagree with me that in a minute um I also did psychology masters um so yeah that that is very rare that I've been in a space where your individual identity and story becomes insignificant and the thing that is elevated and the thing that feels more powerful is this sense of the, the collective. And that that was another way that I think of like collective narrative. I'm really struck by the anonymity in that group. I've I've decided you sat in a circle. I can't remember if you said you sat in a circle. Um, but I, 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 I'm trying to put myself in that position and ha- hearing somebody share my difficult experience you know I can probably imagine what that would have been like but to be there and and just hear these experiences and actually suddenly then the word responsibility pops into my head just as you said it and yeah that that was quite striking that then as a group you have this kind of you have these experiences that you've heard and you don't know whose is whose but you have to some degree kind of owned them as a group. They're, they're now yours, your experiences. Um, what happened next? How, was that, how, does, how does that get kind of closed or ended as an experience? Um, it didn't really, like it just, people felt really quite moved mm. and um, we just sort of acknowledged what we'd all felt and experienced. And, you know, and I should say like some of some people's experiences were not, you know, 
I think I think sometimes in those situations, everyone assumes there's going to be like high levels of trauma, and it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily like that, it, you know. Like, and that's that's okay too. But that can sometimes be quite a different thing, especially if there's someone in a group setting like that who hasn't taken responsibility for what they're bringing into a space like that. Um, so they've sort of put it onto the group. Um, so, I mean, I guess in one sense, it was just very beautifully facilitated by my friend Sarah, who was running the retreat. But, big up Sarah. Yeah, big up Sarah. And, and yeah, and then, so, yeah, we it just ended as, mm. a, as an acknowledgement of how powerful it had felt. Um, and since then... I've been in touch with like Sarah and a few other people saying, what are other experience, what, what, what are the other like rituals or methods that would create that same sense mm. of the collective? Mm. Um, and nobody's really come up with one. So that, that's one of the things I am really interested in is like mm. how, because I would love to create spaces and do some of that that kind of activity and yeah like I've said everything else I know of always starts with you and the you as an individual yeah so I'm trying to pick apart the different threads of that experience so there's the anonymity is is one thing there's also potentially the fact that there was no action you know we're, we're hearing these stories and then we're going to go our separate ways and we've, we've all shared these stories. Maybe that was part of it, but I'm kind of, I'm just noticing that when you were telling that I kind of had this urge of like, Oh, but then what next, you know, what was, what was done, but maybe in itself, that was quite a nice, a nice way to, to have it kind of, there will be no action on this. It's just about hearing and being with that in the training that I did in narrative therapy, they talk about outsider witness practice. Mm. And one of the principles there is people sharing a story. So they talk for a bit of time and there are other people there and they can just be other people. Um, ideally, you'd probably have people who might have had similar experiences. And after listening to the person talk, they then talk about what resonated for them in what that person said. So not not making it about them necessarily but about the content and um i suppose the idea is that you you've had other people that you don't have any connection with just hear you pick out something that resonated that they connected to and then say you know say why and you then leave with a few more connections than you arrived with and uh in what you described it might have been that you had this quite kind of harmonious moment where you felt very connected and I could I could imagine that being quite powerful mm. yeah I mean I wonder if some of what made it feel so uh, beautiful was because we had been together for like two days um so there probably was already a level of connection even though like in that space there was definitely people that knew one another more or less and mm. that kind of but I think um the what you've just described around the narrative therapy narrative therapy and witnessing that's something that the point people which is uh something I'm a part of um we're doing actually um because one of 
some someone that we know has offered to come and experiment with us around this idea of um witnessing so we're going to do every month I think we're meeting and taking it in turns as a way of building sort of intimacy in the Mm. group um and I love I I mean firstly witnessing is just a really powerful thing in and of itself because I feel like generally as a society we're really poor at listening to one another and noticing Mm. and like being very present and really paying attention so I guess that idea of like being seen and being really seen um that in in and of itself I think I'm just really excited to sort of have that experience with people but then yeah this idea of you then reflect back what it's evoked in you Mm. and what you've experienced and felt through the witnessing um I guess I guess that's another I feel like there's something about the collective consciousness in that, mm. which will be interesting. You made me think of a memory of my dad. We were, I was young. I don't know how young, but um, we were on the street and there was an argument between two people and it was quite, um, it was getting quite heated to the point where as a child, I kind of thought, you know, maybe someone's going to hit someone. and. Uh, my dad just stopped and he didn't try and get involved physically. He just stopped and watched. And one of the people turned around and was like, you know, what are you looking at? And he just said, I'm just, I'm just looking, I'm watching. I want you to know that I'm watching. And it was re- it was interesting because the people kind of backed away from my dad and each other and kind of went their separate ways. And it was a moment that stayed with me as, a kind of putting yourself in the position of witness, like on a community level, I kind of want you to know that I'm just, I'm here to see this for good or worse. And um, yeah, but it, it, it almost had this physical effect on the people, the way they moved away from that. So I wonder why that doesn't happen more because it, even as a child, I didn't feel like it was dangerous to do that. Maybe my dad would feel differently about it, but, um yeah it, it's proactive but also quite distanced mm. I was just I started thinking about neighborhood watch <laughs> oh, yeah. as a form of witnessing mm. um but yeah that's do you really have a neighborhood fun. watch where you live I don't know actually but I feel like I'm really into I think there's um I I defaced a neighborhood watch logo in photoshop last year when i was doing a project with a couple of friends around the collective consciousness Mm -hmm. and called and like left the logo but changed the name from neighborhood watch to our collective consciousness so the logo that's coming to mind is faces is it three faces i don't know it's three but yeah it's yellow and black with black silhouettes I feel like it's quite stern and then someone might be wearing a, a, a hat, a hat of power. Um, I, it, that's an interesting institution, Neighbourhood Watch. I kind of feel like I grew up knowing that that was a thing and seeing the signs every now and again. I couldn't tell you anyone that's in one. And I also feel like people, to some degree, are trying to replicate that sentiment of, you know, 
coming together as a community, um, the big lunch, that that kind of phenomenon of, okay, we're going to try and, you know, on our road, we're going to talk to each other and be together. And yeah, I, I wonder how one gets into being in the Neighbourhood Watch. I do, I I'd do love to think, see a map of the UK and how many there are. I feel like, I know as an organisation, they've definitely been trying to go through some change because I know um, an organisation that was doing some work with them. Um, I guess there's things like Nextdoor, which is um, it's a platform that kind of works with a very small neighbourhood area. You, you, so you sign up. It's a bit like a, a neighbourhood Facebook, but you sign up with your postcode and you're literally connected to people within, it's probably half a mile or mm. It's probably, yeah, half a mile radius. I should know because I'm on it, but I haven't, I'm not active on it. Um, and on, on that, I sometimes get sent, like you see people saying, Oh, three cars were broken into on this street last mm. night, or we've had someone attempt a burglary. Um, so I guess there are also newer platforms that are appearing to mm. try and do some of that work. Um, that's a private company though so i i would rather it wasn't a private company that was collecting our data in our local neighborhoods um which is why i think neighborhood watch if it can evolve um is a much better mm. um a much better way of having that kind of awareness in neighborhoods maybe like the word watch is not quite the right word anymore it's quite exclusive yeah and and quite like uh, stalkery. I mean, definitely the 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 image that comes to mind when I think of neighbourhood watch is someone like peering through their lace curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, rather than watch, I suppose what we want people to just have is more awareness. So it's like neighbourhood awareness doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Mm. Um, yeah, just neighbourhood. Yeah. Mm. I feel like you've edged up against something that I might call archetypes in the way that you you talk about collective unconscious and collective narrative and you also mentioned the word myth earlier which that was interesting that kind of piqued my interest and I wondered why you mentioned the word myth Mm -hmm. I think you were talking about death and grief then but I might I might have misremembered that I probably was like linking many too many things together um, I'm distracted by someone doing exercises outside that door. Um, so I mentioned the word myth mostly because um, someone I know called Alex Evans, who does something called the Collective Psychology Project. Yes. Yeah. Um, he wrote a book called The Myth Gap. And um, I went to see him talk about that. And I suppose that was when I really sort of thought about that we don't have new myths and the, or the, and that we don't really have um, a lot of the myths that we maybe used to have don't make sense anymore or people are just not connected to them. You know, like how many people do you know could talk to you about their ancestors or the land in which they, you know, grew up on and the kind of folklores and myths and stories that like 
live and surround us I just think it's not you know it's, it's not very present in a lot of our consciousness um and maybe yeah just that we need some new myths I think that you know that's what Alex thinks anyway that we have a, a myth gap um and but yeah I'm not sure you know I guess how that might link to death and loss is maybe one of the reasons that we have disconnected from um, our past, our myths, are is because generally as a society we're not we're, we're quite good at avoiding the, the pain of loss, and we don't talk about loss. We we disconnect from it, and maybe there's something in in that that has also disconnected us from the past or from what's gone before or I don't know I'm totally making things up now well I think that that's a fun part of conversation uh, so for me what what resonated then was how narrow that makes our our, our focus because if I I'm worried about thinking too far into the future because then I have to think about my own mortality. And I'm also hesitant or reluctant to think too far in the past because then I have to connect with loss and people that have died. Then I have a really, uh, you know, quite a small window of years to operate within. I think that, yeah, I do wonder about that. I think there's quite a lot of splitting that happens when people talk about death or, or suffering generally, actually. It's quite, I think people like to protect themselves by kind of being like, that's them over there with, you know, that experience or. Mm, yeah, lots of thoughts. But it also makes me think of how there's a interesting paradox with what I just said, because I don't think people are particularly present in their day-to-day lives. Um, there's lots in the way we communicate that takes our mind off to different places, but we also have quite a, a narrow, if we continue with that metaphor, a narrow scope of years to operate within. So we're kind of limited to near the present, but not in the present. Um, and I wonder how that, that might influence how people live their, their day-to-day life. I don't know. Or do you think they're in the present, but just on the surface of the present, not fully feet in the ground in the present or something? Yeah, we could call it something like present-ish. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I haven't read The Myth Gap, but I, that's something I would like to read. I suppose some of the people that talk about myths and the fact that there might be truth within them that is a human truth or that they have a function which is a collective function might argue that we don't need new myths because we have you know we have that truth that's communicated within myths generally and across them i'm trying to think about what what issues are coming up in in the future and i feel like it might you know it might be the same kind of thing that that fear uncertainty 
being at the mercy of nature, those those things might come back around. And you think they've we've had them many times before, so they're already in our consciousness somewhere. Hmm. Uh, I think I was making a, I was wondering out loud about whether we, what new myths would look like. Um, and maybe, maybe human issues are human issues with different kind of, uh, syrup gels in them. Um, but yeah, then, then I think I kind of shifted point a bit and actually maybe we've had quite a cotton walled existence for a few decades in terms of you think about people living in London, their experience of, of nature. And uh, it might be that in the future that experience shifts quite a lot. And so you might have, you know, myths that were from very, very, very far back in uh, English history about the power of the wind or the sea suddenly become very relevant. That's like, yeah, real mythic stuff. I suppose I feel like maybe these aren't myths. I don't know. When does a story become a myth or, you know, I don't know the right uh, timeframes for things to become more mythic than just narrative. Um, But I do feel like we're living in a time where even though we are in a fairly dystopian world, um, some people are really living in the climate crisis in a way that we probably can't even imagine yet in in the privilege of the UK um but even though that the sort of fear is is real in terms of you know like some of the things we should be fearful of will happen are happening um the 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 narratives are very dominantly I don't know if that's the word the the narratives are very dystopian and I feel what's missing a lot at the moment, this is something I spoke about last week at a talk I gave, is the need to to still be able to imagine something beyond the dystopia. Mm. So not to erase it or pretend it's not going to happen or that it isn't already happening. We are doing this interview in the middle of, um, you know, a big pandemic breaking out around the world. And I'm sure that's just the first of many things like that that we can't, even imagine yet but at some point we might arrive in a different world you know like that isn't impossible and I I don't find that there's many narratives at the moment or myths if you like that I can access that that point me in that direction or give me a lot of hope for that I mean I have hope myself just because that's how I choose to start my day every day Mm. Um, but I, yeah, generally, we don't have those myths. So I have no idea about the time frame required either. Um, something that comes with narrative therapy as an approach is this idea that people might have narratives that they tell about themselves. Um, I feel like that could probably be applied to communities might have narratives that they tell about themselves that don't serve them. So sometimes through conversation, you can uh, spot inconsistencies in that narrative or or there might be kind of gleaming exceptions and then you can explore those a little bit and then you you might find yourself kind of looking at this alternative narrative or a preferred narrative and 
that could be your step on the way to to find finding some hope. I think that quite often with narratives, it can be useful to look for the the values there. So, for example, you know, you talked about dystopian narratives, and you know, when we're hearing somebody talk about um, a dystopian existence, I'd be like, well, I'd be curious. You know, why is this a problem? Why is it a problem that that society might seem a bit dystopian at the moment? And then very quickly you'd arrive at, well, because I want to live a good life, or you know, I want the people around me to be happy, and then so suddenly you have this slight shift and. And you can explore moments where that might have been more the case or you're closer closer to that. So how and how much in narrative therapy practice are are, are there people, you know, like psychologists, like therapists, um, my mum's psychotherapist, I've studied psychology, um, I've also trained as a coach. So, you know, okay, you get team coaching, but mostly therapeutic practice and psychological practice. Um, I'm going to assume narrative therapy practice too works with individuals. Have you seen narrative therapy be used in a community? That's a really good question, and I think that there are there are tools which have been developed which have a more communal uh, emphasis. So I don't know if you've heard of the Tree of Life. Um, I will send you some cool uh i mean you can get them on google but there are some cool uh resources um yes please and so the tree of life is a a process that you you can go through um uh you can draw it out but the the different layers of of the tree connect you to different uh resources that you have so it might be um where you come from and the, the heritage you have important people in your life, the skills, the values, the gifts you've been given. And the story of how this was developed is a really powerful one because it relates to a time when there were lots of horrible things happening in communities and the, the psychologists came in with their approach and it was to, you know, talk about your problems. And actually the level of trauma was such that it was just re-traumatizing people and it was completely counter- productive and so the tree of life was a way of helping people to bring together all of the resources and good things that they could think of in one place before you started thinking about uh challenges so it 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 completely flipped the the process of exploration and you can combine your trees into a forest of life and so then as a group or community you can think about all of your respective resources and then you can think about the storms of life so that could happen on an individual level it can also happen on a group or a community level i'll admit i've used it mostly you know with individuals so i haven't got personal experience of doing that i've almost edged into it with teams at team days but actually thinking about it i've normally neglected that that kind of and if I normally flag it like, and we could bring it together to think about forests of life. So yeah, I wonder why that hasn't happened more. But that you know that that's one one thing that immediately jumps to mind. Mm. In systems coaching, so I've trained as an organisation and relationship systems coach. There's an activity called um, organisational myth, where you get a team or whichever like group that you're working with to to tell which in a way is a collective narrative but to 
narrate their myths about sort of what how they got to where they did um which is also can be quite a powerful activity um that I should think about experimenting with more in communities I suppose in the way that you use the word neglect there that you've you focus on the individual and maybe neglected doing the forest I'm really really obsessed with how to neglect the individual in all these activities and always make the starting point the collective Mm. um yeah that's kind of that's something I'm really interested in because I think we have particularly through the personal development culture um become so much about how do we each develop as individuals to be the best we can be and I'm I wonder if another or a different narrative is how can we be the best we can be as a collective and then because of that we will probably also each be the best we can be as individuals so it's 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 like a different starting point Mm. I might have made this paper up because I've tried to look for it and I haven't been able to find it uh, which is really frustrating but it was on something called collective intelligence and it was this idea that um, I mean, I'm going to butcher it because I haven't been able to read it since I maybe read it or made it up. Um, ability of a of a group outweighs the individual um, components in terms of ability to perform at, at tasks. The it reason probably that, depends so, who's in the group. Yes, yeah, I, I'd accept that. Um, the reason that I mentioned that is because I think that. Yeah, I think that it it makes sense to me that within a within a community or a group fulfilling a, a productive role within that, and everybody was, you probably would experience a level of well being which was uh, greater than you might on your own. I think that there's a really strong case to be made uh, for the kind of relational and social variables within within contributing to well being. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I love about collective intelligence is the idea that there's something that a group can know that one individual never could. Oh, same one. Um, I mean, I don't have a specific example. I wish I did, cause, but I just like the idea of it. And I kind of believe it on some level that, you know, if there's 10 people standing in a in a room, there's something that 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 those 10 people together, so the kind of intelligence that the group has or the intelligence that that group can sense or see because it's more than one person, like the the collective sensing or intelligence that's gathered offers something that the minute you try to like pull that group apart and individualise everyone, you couldn't see it anymore. I suppose it reminds me a bit of... um, you know, if you've got an aerial aerial view of like a group of people standing together and each each one of those people oh no, there's that what's that thing of where um there's like different people are cleaning or like grooming parts of an elephant and they don't know that they're only actually dealing with one part of the animal. Oh, and they don't know it's an elephant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's Oh, there's something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. but yeah, I feel like there is a collective intelligence that is only able to be accessed because you're in a collective. I mean, I, I, I can think of a, with two people, the ability to swap and shift perspectives, I think is 
so much greater than having one person because I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, if I've done a piece of writing and someone else reads it, we make so much progress in terms of crafting it and getting it closer to being palatable than I would on my own because I'm so, I'm so fixed. Even if I try and, you know, put myself in other, someone else's head or perspective, it, it takes quite a lot of my cognitive resource and, and after a while I just get muddled and tired. Um, but yeah, having somebody else to be part of that process makes it a lot more seamless. I also see that kind of dynamic in working through emotions and thoughts because people can contain other people. If we think about the role of that, you know, a baby and, a, and, a, and someone caring for that baby, you are with them through that pain of whatever's that discomfort, whatever's going on, and you try and work it out. And, um, and you know, as they grow older, they can do more of that themselves. But there are certainly moments where people uh, have done that for me. You know, I, I'm feeling upset or whatever it is. And they kind of just take on some of that. We, we work through and then, and then we go off on our ways together. And that isn't something you can do as much as, a, as an individual. And, you know, so even that, I suppose, two is twice one, but. I imagine you kind of build that capacity as you have groups as opposed to individuals. Yeah. Why do you Why do you find this interesting? Why do I find this? Well, for different. I mean, I find the narrative, the the need for better narrative work, interesting because I don't think we're going to be able to like address some of the big complex issues we face unless we start actually communicating about them in a way that does them justice. I feel like the narratives that we need I, I suppose they link to kind of culture and you know stories build like seed cultivate build culture they're like one of the stories are sort of one of the currencies if you like of like culture and I feel like culture is one of the ways that we can affect change that's one of the reasons I'm interested because most of my work is about trying to affect change. But then I suppose the other stuff, the sort of more, the harder to kind of like articulate or grasp this kind of collective consciousness or collective intelligence. Um, I, I've spoken before about this idea that, you know, as we co-evolve with technology, you know, if if our sort of technological systems continue to evolve alongside living systems, um, I think there's a certain type of intelligence that we have within living systems, whether that's nature or humans, that I want to, I guess I really want that intelligence to be strong in that co-evolution with technology. I, I don't want technology to dominate our world. Um, and I suppose the what what lives in our collective consciousness, what lives in our intuitions, the the way that farmers who farmed on the land for hundreds of years can sense when the weather's changing or you know, all of this kind of tacit or embodied wisdom that I think we only have in living systems not in technological systems um I want us to not lose that and I suppose I feel like to keep that alive 
we need to keep practicing it and we need to a bit like self-regulation is a muscle I I suppose I believe our kind of in, intuition our sensing our knowing our wisdom is also something that we need to keep practicing um and I suppose I believe particularly in this idea that there's things we can only know as a collective that we can't access as individuals and what whatever's in that collective knowing or that collective wisdom we probably need more than ever right now um and we're going to keep needing so that's my other interest in it really I mean that's very vague in some ways it means very hard to define and distinguish um you know and there's lots of people doing work around collective intelligence Nesta's got a new center for collective intelligence design and I think they're doing some really interesting and good work um but they are really only thinking of intelligence at the moment in relation to our minds they're not thinking about our embodied intelligence they're not really thinking about intuition and wisdom um and so it's just a it's 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 just growing and evolving some of that work um so that yeah where humans or where living systems and machines meet they're meeting um as equals or at least with the strengths of each being um at the forefront of how they interact with one another and I suppose I feel like the strength of living systems or especially humans is their access to in that they're they're in our intuition our wisdom our myths our collective knowing our culture our histories and all of that that we bring yeah I suppose the way that I make sense of intuition is that it's the sum of our interactions and I think that technology does bring a a distance to interactions so if I send emails as opposed to have conversations I I get so I will have such a smaller reservoir of interactions and relationships to to fuel my intuition I'd never thought about intuition as something that should be practiced, but if interactions are limited, I could, I could see, you know, you'd have to go to like an intuition gym and talk, have some conversations. Um, I felt like there was something else in what you said about narratives, helping us to understand or solve problems. And, and I suppose I think that we, we, help work out and and generate meaning through narratives. Um, I think that's a really human thing. I suppose I don't know enough about the social change area to know how that can interface with creating potential solutions. But I recognize that sometimes research into areas or issues is done and it's, it's, kind of as a process it's very grabby and that sometimes participating in research can feel like you're just giving up uh your stories as opposed to participating in a process and sometimes 
I, you know, I've I've had friends and, and read research which people work with the participants and actually they're they're generating potential solutions as part of the data collection process. Um and that always felt quite compelling to me because it, you know, everyone leaves that experience richer for it. Yeah, I can see how you know that that's quite an exciting possibility for narratives and social change. Mm. I might have to have a few minutes break. I'm going like Yes, do that. That's cool. <laughs> Water. Point people, I haven't I can picture the Twitter <laughs> logo. Yeah. But um I haven't I haven't seen any stuff from point people in a while, but I haven't been looking for it. We don't really do I mean I'm actually on sabbatical from point people this year anyway. Mm-hmm. Um but we don't really do a lot of work. Um we've probably like we've this is our ten year anniversary. And I would say in 10 years, we've probably done like eight pieces of work. Um, But I think some of the value of the point people for the point people has just been a consistency of like meeting up every month for 10 years and trying to kind of, well, not only just be like a support network, but try and actively share and connect across the different domains and projects that we're working on Mm. um in a way a bit like a micro uh micro kind of collective intelligence um experiment yeah it makes me think a little bit of communities of practice the idea you have people you know interested in the same things doing different stuff bringing it together i had the domain name conversation club for about five years and i thought that kind of a imagine this semi-regular forum for people to bring things they wanted to talk about you know it could be professional or personal whatever it is but with the rationale that through having that conversation you'd leave with something more than you came with it's quite compelling the the idea of just have, having regular touch points yeah i like that i've just started um with my close close friends uh, we called it uh, monthly Mandem meet- meetups. And the idea is just to try and have time when we connect and we're not uh, out in a noisy environment or, you know, just like dancing. I wasn't sure how they'd respond to that invitation really, but like I think the thing that they found most interesting was just like, we're just going to do it every month. And that and that, and that was that. And I think that, yeah, they, they kind of, they saw that there'd be some, nice connection in there i'm jealous of your 10 years of (laughs) monthly meetups yeah it's pretty cool yeah consistency is really important Mm -hmm. for building trust and for your break do you want to walk around and get fresh air i'm 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 happy i'm happy to have had my break by now oh right okay (laughs) you might still want a break no No, i'm quite yeah, yeah i'm quite what should we talk about now then I suppose we've talked about narratives really broadly and your understanding of collective narratives. And I think we've opened up the the parcel of how that can be useful for understanding complicated issues. And I suppose something that interests me is how you you see it developing. Um, I don't know if you have any 
plans or ideas for using or yeah, using narrative as a way for you know for the future. Maybe you can't talk about it, it might be top secret. No, it's not top secret. Um I mean we're we are looking at kind of how to do better narrative work here. Um I've developed very heavily influenced by the narrative initiative in New York. Um some materials um for grant makers for for foundations around better narrative work, um, which are literally just some tools, a whole set of different like tools, canvases, questions, etc. Um, but I haven't tested them really yet. Don't know if they're any good. Some of them will be because they're kind of from the narrative initiative. Um, there's also like some other organisations and people. So uh, more in common, um, which is an organisation. Um, that was set up by a friend of mine called Gemma Mortensen. They are doing some really interesting work around narrative um, and they're going to do some convening. Um, I've met and I'm in conversations with a couple of other funders about potentially setting up something similar to the narrative initiative in New York, but here in the UK. Um, I think there's people like Ella Saltmarsh and Beatrice Pembroke who are both point people. Um, Ella in particular has done a lot of work around narrative and culture in the climate world. And her, her mum was... Her mum's a... She, was her mum your she teacher? Was on my, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they're now doing the long time projects. Um, you know, so... And, the, and people like Joseph Roundtree Foundation are doing some interesting work. That's more around framing, though. Um, and actually, even I think Ella would be the first to say, like, it, it's something Ella has thought and knows a lot about. But in terms of actually developing it as a practice, um, I think it's just still a very, like, nascent, is la- what's, the, what's that? Nascent, nascent, a very nascent area where there's a bunch of people that know this is a thing that needs to be done better but there isn't actually anyone yet that's got a set of tools and ways of doing it better that they can sort of point out and say look whereas the frameworks institute have done that around framing i think there's lots of people thinking about how you use culture around social change but I still really haven't come across anyone that that's really can sort of lay out here's how you do systemic narratives here's how you thread together narratives across a whole issue area um to create a narrative that's about the whole rather than just the individual stories um blah 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 so that's kind of it's an area I don't have any answers myself it's just something I've been looking at how to do it better for quite a while Mm. and have not found anyone else that can show me or teach me so I feel like I'm in this pool of people that are trying to figure it out as we go um and then I think with the other stuff the sort of more collective consciousness stuff or collective narratives um I think that's just yeah trying to do some little experiments that that's not really in my sort of work life that's more on a personal level I'm just really interested in that Mm. you made me think of Michael Wyatt who's the 
founder of narrative therapy, created these frameworks for conversations and their purpose is to to help kind of navigate narratives and 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 ex- and take them towards a, a place of a place of hope and i i i don't feel like i could do it off the top of my head but i yeah i wonder what it would look like if those maps were used or considered through the lens of you know coll- collective narratives that could be quite an interesting project I suppose you're making me think of like, what's it called when you squaring? So if you have seven to the power of seven, that's called squaring. Mm. Um, if, if I bring uh, a story, you know, that's going to have my interpretation. Um, if I tell you that story, you're then going to interpret it. So we have two interpretations of one story. And if you tell me a story, then suddenly we have two stories and four interpretations. And I I could see that you might reach a point of saturation with narratives and you'd have to get that balance right. When I was learning about qualitative research, we had this kind of dynamic between the lecturers and the psychologists where we'd be like, how many interviews is enough interviews? And they'd say, well, you can't answer that question. And um you know, I suppose the answer really is when you start seeing recurring themes in, in the data, you, you're like, okay, maybe we've done enough. But yeah, I wonder what that would look like when we're thinking of collective narratives, because you wouldn't want to miss potential gems of story, but you also, in adding that gem, suddenly might shift everything that you had collected previously. Mm. Do you know of any methodologies that have been? created for that kind of approach or would it be a case of trying to develop them from the ground up um i think that i think that's sort of what i meant by that i've been probably for the last two years looking for what those Mm. methods are and not really finding any so apart from the narrative initiative having this idea of like stars constellations and galaxies and in systemic coaching you know, we have this practice around like your your organizational myth, and that's like narrating um the story of us. Um I haven't really come I, I I'm I'm sure that in indigenous communities, you know, I feel like there'll be this kind of wisdom, this kind of collective narration and storytelling and stuff is probably what uh a lot of indigenous communities have been doing for centuries um but obviously i don't have access to that um and if i were them i would keep a lot of their wisdom to themselves because we've um we've not been very honorable or respectful to their wisdom for many 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 years you talked about a personal connection to exploring narratives i suppose i'm interested whether you have any next steps for that over the next few years or uh, intention that you are interested in? Um, God, I've got loads, of, probably loads of things I could say in response to that. Um, I mean, last year, m- m- myself and my friend Deborah Shebeko and Sam Roddick 
did try and start some experiments around the collective consciousness. And we ended up like pausing it because I think it just wasn't the right time for various reasons. Um, but I am really interested in doing some more of that. Um, at the moment, that's just like a time capacity, what what I give time to and what I don't. Um, but it's definitely still something that I'm, I'm very much interested in. And um, and because it, it kind of should complement some of the much more palatable work that organisations like Nesta are doing, um, you know, because it, it, it's very easy to pass it off as a bit woo-woo, I guess. I don't think it is. I think it's like central to some of those questions about how we co-evolve with technology. Um, so yeah, I'm, that's something that I hope I might have some time to still do. Um, and then I guess like other narrative stuff I'm interested in, you know, I am, I'm really interested in our, all of our own kind of personal narratives. Um, and I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said recently, well, it probably wasn't even recent. I just read it recently that, you know, telling your own story, um, telling your own personal narrative can be an act of, like, activism or solidarity. And, you know, many of us have lots of stories to tell. Um, and I I've, I have some stories to tell. And I think it's whether, whether you do choose to do that in a public way um, or how you do it why you would do it so those are questions I'm asking um, myself and then I think also like narratives around grief really interest me just because um, I have been through a lot of grief in the last sort of three years um, three or four years four years now and you know like I've found that there's very little language that's adequate for grief you know there's very few words that you can that really like um help articulate the experience of grief and loss and um yeah so I'm generally just interested in how we talk about loss and grief in different ways and I suppose that links on to um, I've just recently got a bit of funding from the Paul Hamlin Foundation to explore this idea of a farewell fund for organisations that probably need to die. Um, you know, I would say in civil society in the UK, maybe a third of all organisations probably should be thinking about making way for the new, merging with one another, redefining their role, but but engaging in some kind of loss like that there's things that they're doing that are no longer fit for purpose um and that's very painful and difficult and you know a challenging thing to face up to but I'm interested in if you create the the kind of compassionate space for that work to be done well can you actually like steward people through a process of loss um and 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 closing things down and I guess there's, that will involve narrative work. Well, endings are hard and some of the organisations might not be quite ready for that ending. But I could see how that's a really powerful process to take people through. Would your hope be that by the end of that process, people would 
acknowledged that, yeah, actually looking at the remit of what we do, maybe we're not needed in this form anymore. Yeah. Mm. And for that to feel um, okay, you know, that they find actually some relief in that. I have a kind of hunch that there's probably loads of people leading organisations that are struggling to survive. And, I, you know, I don't think that none of them should survive because there'll be lots of them that, just need some funding and do need to exist but I feel like there's probably some people that are leading charities organizations in civil society at the moment that actually are probably so exhausted and probably somewhere in their intuition know that they're kind of flogging a dead horse for want of a better like metaphor and actually if you offer them some resource and space and compassion um to to have agency over how they close something down that that actually might end up being a really positive experience for people mm. yeah well i can certainly see that there, there could be a therapeutic benefit in that in that ending what's well, so that ending being facilitated yeah that sounds like a really interesting uh, idea and maybe one for another time. And I, I also, where we kind of, we haven't got into narratives and death as much as we could have done, but I also feel like we should respect the time limit and not open it up now. Uh, so that's interesting that we, we didn't quite get to death. I think that there's a lot of really important work and conversations to be had around death i have experienced a lot of important bereavements in the last six years and that's taken me to a place where i felt able to talk to people or offer uh, an ear to people who have uh, experienced recent deaths and actually what's been most powerful about that process is how little people feel like they're able to have those conversations people just being like wow you know people just don't know what to even how to offer the fact that you might want to talk and um that can be very isolating i'm trying to think of the the opposite of affirming that um i'm looking to well i have uh recently found out i'm a Winston Churchill Fellow for 2020. Oh, congratulations. Uh, and every time I talk about it, I'm I having to change. I, I would be saying, oh, yeah, I'm hoping to. And now I'm having to say, yeah, I am going to um, look at mindful approaches to suffering. And I suppose the idea really is that quite often people turn away from suffering and difficult experiences and for good reason but sometimes they can be facilitated to turn towards it and that can lead to quite transformational moments. And I, there are some really amazing people doing hard, interesting work in San Francisco with um, palliative care and also thinking about uh, how to apply those principles to life. And, and my hope is to create a framework for working with young carers in the UK because they they kind of find themselves in like a chronic situation and some of it might be very difficult but there also might be some really powerful powerful things in there for them 
Um, so yes, I, I kind of lumped that in with what you've said about um, the opportunity that, that hard conversations can bring. There we go. I really just had to end the episode on the, hmm. <laughs> it felt like a really poignant place to end what I thought was a really poignant conversation. If you are really interested in Cassie's work and you want to know more, check out the links. If you think you know someone who would make a really good guest on the sizzle, get in touch and share the episode with anyone who you think would benefit from it. Until next time. Sizzle.